Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Happy New Year to you. And to my gluttonous companion, Thea Lenarduzzi. Thea, hello. Hello, I object to that. Oh, gluttonous? Yeah. Uh, well, it's too late now. <laughs> we can't turn back Couldn't time. Couldn't possibly edit. Yeah, we can't turn back time as Cher so memorably yeah. once sung. Uh, new Year in Italy, is there a culinary tradition? Yes. Oh, yeah, there is. You have cotechino, which is this like very fatty, uh, oh, it's delicious um, sausage. Yes. You boil it. Ooh. It's very loose. Uh, loose, fatty, <laughs> boiled pink. sausage. Oh, I, mean, I can see Sarah, second. the producer, <laughs> just Hang on a second. This is a pink, loose, it's fatty, delicious. boiled sausage. It tastes, I mean, come a bit, on. it tastes a bit like, do you know, you're sort of, well, you're not northern, you're from the Midlands. Midlands, yeah, yeah. But do, do you know what bacon ribs are? So it's like a cured, oh yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. semi-cured smoked meat, yeah. pink, um, delicious. Anyway, so it's <laughs> it's a sausage, and you boil it. You boil a sausage, uh, and it's delicious. And you have it with mashed potato Ooh. and uh, lint- uh, I was about to say lenticchia, but lentils. Yeah. To that's prosperity money. Um, basically, the lentils oh. are supposed to symbolise the money. So you have that at midnight on 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 do Year's you? Eve. Yeah. Do you do that? You do. And even if you go somewhere posh quite often, they'll bring a little sampling around of those three After things. Pink sausage. Yeah. What's it called again? Uh, cotequino. Cotequino. Well, I'm glad I asked. <laughs> uh, make your New Year's resolution a determination to expand your mind and subscribe to the TLS. Use this special offer to get on board. The-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. It's the best price anywhere on the internet. Five issues for £5 or $5. Coming up this week, the frankly terrifying spectacle of three arts journalists trying to understand quantum physics and the subatomic world. Sam Graydon is one of them, and he actually does understand it. So that is a start. Your bluffer's guide to science starts shortly. The great Elaine Showalter will be on the line to tell us about the life of children's author E. Nesbitt. It's quite a shocking one. And we're running a feature about out-of-print books. TLS contributors tell us what should be back in circulation and why. Ros Deneen has superintended that feature and will be here in the studio.
According to John Gribbin's new book, Six Impossible Things, here are six ways of seeing the world. One, the world does not exist unless you look at it. Two, particles are pushed around by an invisible wave, but the particles have no influence on the wave. Three, everything that could possibly happen does in an array of parallel realities. Four, everything that could possibly happen has already happened and we only noticed part of it. Five, everything influences everything else instantly as if space does not exist. I don't really understand that. Six, the future influences the past. Mm. Welcome to the world of quantum physics, in which uncertainty is both a condition of reality and a consequence of trying to understand it. Sam Graydon, who also knows a lot about poetry, has read Gribbin's book, which has the incredibly annoying subtitle, The Quanta of Solace and the Mysteries of the Subatomic World. He's also read Lee Smolin's Einstein's Unfinished Revolution. He's here to try to make sure we, by which I mean me, are not completely baffled. Sam, hello. Hello. It's a terrible subtitle, The yes. Quanta of Solace. It's an awful subtitle that I imagine he wanted to be the title and the publisher said. I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> and there's no point. It's just a gag about James Bond that has no real... Pretty much, yeah. He shoehorns his meaning in, which is that we try and seek solace in the face of all of this unknowable stuff via these six or you know, manifold ways of interpreting it. But that's a bit of a stretch. Okay. Terrible though it may be, Stig, it didn't stop you extending it to the headline, did it? No, I think that's I think that's <laughs> clever. Yeah. Bearing in mind, I only that. understood, you know, between 30 and 40% of this. Uh, <laughs> I had to, I thought, how am I going to do a headline here? I, I do know James Bond titles. Uh, and so the headline is, the world is not enough, which is a wry <laughs> response to it. Exactly, Sam approved it. Right, so we're going to go slow. Mm-hmm. Thea, is this for your benefit as much as mine? Or? It certainly is. Fine, good. And define our terms. Quantum. What do we mean by quantum? Now, it's used very, very generally to mean basically the subatomic world, everything it's very in small. the world. Yeah, everything in the small parts of the world. But initially, it meant a specific thing. Um, it comes from the Latin to mean how much and was sort of used as to refer to a specific amount of something. Um, and... The, in physics, it was used to refer to a specific amount of energy. That is to say, energy can only exist at discrete values. Chunks. Chunks. It was found out, it wasn't believed, and then it was found out, and it was quite a surprise, that once you get down to the really small things, things aren't scalar, they're granular. They're like little bits of sand. Energy can only exist in discrete values. No matter how small you go, there's always a, a smaller discrete value to go to. Indeed, or that there's a base level and you have an amount of energy and then if you want to put a bit more energy into it, if you want to energise it, it doesn't slide up to the next available one. It just leaps and there's nothing in between it. There are, there's one and there's two in the energy spectrum and so, there's so, nothing so, in between. So if something gets more energy, it goes from being at level one to at level two. Yeah, and there's nothing in between them. There's no transition. No transition. There's no time passing between well, it. Well, how does it happen then? Don't quite, no. <laughs> and that may become a theme of, of this. This is, this, this is why, in fact, the, the subtitle of the piece is Guessing at the Game God is Playing, because one of the kind of interesting facets to all of this is we're in the realms of high science. Yes, and the frontiers of science as well. But, but that doesn't necessarily give us certainty, in fact, quite the opposite. Quite the opposite, as we'll get yeah. to. Okay, tell us about the double slit experiment. In 2005 or something like that, yeah. the physics community 
uh, whatever that means, but they voted it the most beautiful experiment in science. Be- beautiful aesthetically? I think they probably mean mathematically and right, scientifically. Okay. Ever? The, yeah, I mean, again, uh, who this body of people were, <laughs> but... Um, Are you in the physics community, Sam? I am an interested and quite knowledgeable amateur. Okay. Um, I studied it at school and kept up. My maths wasn't quite good enough, but I liked the concepts and understand. And vaguely. does it connect with your love of poetry? There's a kind of a search for the ephemeral beauty here. Yes, I think there's something behind that. The, the idea that certainly in this type of science and in relativity, I wrote a piece on relativity a year ago or something, and those two areas of science particularly are searching for what connects everything. One of the lines, you've got the act of measurement actively constructs the reality that is being measured. And that's both a true statement, but it's also very philosophical. Yes. It's the sort of tree falls in a forest line. Yes, indeed. Well, and we'll probably get to that. It's, it, is it true? We don't know. No. <laughs> it feels unlikely, doesn't it? <laughs> it um, does. Right, let's talk about the double slit yes, experiment. Let's which, talk. The most beautiful experiment, I think we all agree, Thea. Of course. Yeah. Uh, if, I got, if I lined up a group of experiments this would be that would be my most beautiful yeah it would be the most beautiful try to how easy is it to explain sam can you do it i can do it the nice thing about the double slit experiment is that it's one of the very few things in quantum mechanics that you can visualize or at least partially understands in terms of our world okay and i've got a nice quote from the great richard Feynman, who called it the experiment with two holes and he says that it, I'm it, trying to keep my mind elevated. I want everyone to know this. It's only going to get worse yeah, later yeah, on. There's an awful lot of yeah, comes exactly. There's an awful lot of terms being used, and I'm not responding to this. No. Okay. He said that it was a phenomenon which is impossible, absolutely impossible, to explain in any classical way, and which has in it the heart of quantum mechanics. In reality, it contains the only mystery, the basic peculiarities of all quantum mechanics. So that's probably why it was voted that because it sort of encapsulates. Most, if not well, all problems of quantum mechanics. Go on then. So lay it on us. I will. The nice thing is, it starts with uh, something you probably did at school, which is water waves. Um, you probably had a tray filled with water. Yes. And there, midway through the tray, there was a wall with two little slits in it. Yes. And then there's a little oscillator that sends straight, nice rectangular waves towards this wall. And then yeah. when they get to the slits, they form semicircles and for ripples that propagate out and kind of towards... Through the wall. So, yeah, it gets to the wall, and then at the point of the two slits, two semicircles start instead, and the ripples go in semicircles, like dropping a pebble into a pond, and they go out. And they cross over, um, and at some points, because they cross over, the waves are higher, and at some points, because they cross over, the waves are lower. It's a bit like bouncing on a trampoline when you get that double bounce or you don't get any bounce at all. Yeah. And so that's what happens. The waves go about double the height or they they kind of fade out completely. So the same principle, as it happens, um, applies to light. Yeah. Um, Because light is both... Well, it's neither a wave nor a particle. It acts as if it is both a wave and a particle. Um, And, yes... What is it if it's not? Well, we we don't know. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, It... The thing with most of this is that you try to formulate it in terms that you understand. And actually, the quantum world is filled with things that we have no reference point for. And so it's better to visualise it as acting as both a wave and a particle, when in fact it is some odd mixture that we don't understand of both of them. So so, so what, what do we learn from this then? So we learn it happens with light and you after you send light through two holes 
it acts as if it's a wave and you can see that on the wall after the slits they you get sort of streaks of light like lots of light then darkness lots of light then darkness the same is also true of electrons that is to say of matter electrons act in the same way you can conduct, conduct the same experiment by firing an electron or a beam of electrons at two slits and you get the same effect yeah and that was quite a big surprise although you can argue that it needn't be a big surprise because water waves are in fact made of particles, but they do the same thing. So it's like little particles create wave-like yeah. inference. And everything is little particles. And indeed waves. Every, every, or everything that is matter has a wave-like nature and it has a particle-like nature. So we and the universe, or at least the, all the matter in the universe, has a wave-like and particle-like nature. So that is quite strange. And then what the double-slit experiment then leads you to ask is okay well if we fire the electrons individually what happens so the, so they can't interfere with each other you can't have that overlapping ripples um, and it turned out that by firing one electron at a time yeah. through the slit an interference pattern which is that wave like up and down or big streak of light and darkness that appeared it emerged so you fired one electron and then waited and then one electron and then waited and Although you would think that by firing something through a slit, it would just arrive as this, a little dot, a particle. Yeah, straight. You fire, you fire it straight fire through, it straight and, through it's, and it's through it's, one slit. Well, it, you fire it, and it has an opportunity to pass through one slit or the other slit. But yeah. both slits are open, and it has an opportunity to go through one way or another yeah. way. But even if you fire them individually, it becomes wave-like. So it, you are forced to conclude that it interferes with itself or retroactively interferes with the other ones. It interferes with itself. Yeah. So it goes through both slits at once as a particle or as a particle-like thing, which doesn't quite make sense. Or the other electrons that come after it know which slits the ones before it have come through yeah. and then interfere What's in a wave-like way with that. So... At the level of the particle, there is this ephemeral memory of things. An intelligence. Yeah, well... Metaphorical. I mean, not a metaphorical, metaphorical intelligence. intelligence. Yeah. Yes. Um, and it's more so proved because in 2013, which, again, it's all quite recent development stuff going on, they created a, a way to sort of close off one of the slits and then close off the other one and open the other one. So it sort of alternated... Um, so that, you know, you had one electron going through one slit while the other one was closed, and then they swapped it, and the next one went through one while the other one was closed. So you would think exactly the same as if both of them were open. But when they did that, when they closed off one, they all arrived as particles. They all arrived with no wave-like interference at the other end. So it was as if the particle knew, and as if all of the other particles also knew, that there was only one slit open at the time of them going through the slits. So how could that be true? How? We don't know. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's completely baffling. And every attempt to try and find out, and literally every attempt since, I think, the 1970s when this type of stuff was yeah. really in its peak, when they were able to measure the electrons individually, has created particles at the end Could instead it not of be, waves. I realise I'm not going to find the answer to this, but what I don't... Yeah. <laughs> Enter stick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but does it not imply that if one's not... If their two slits are open, mm. the particle is somehow separating itself 
and definitely going through two slits and that creates interference because if you're blocking one off it can only go through one mm. and it goes through one as a particle mm. so that would imply that when there's two open it is not going through one as a particle it is somehow splitting and going through both yes so that is without the sort of literal interpretation of that because um, at the moment I think the electron is the smallest thing we know of without the sort of literal sense of it splitting in two and going yeah. through it that seems to be what's happening as in the particle is into it sort of interferes with itself it, it somehow knows it's a way that there's two there's two slits why do you have more than two slits i nobody has ever talked about that in a popular science book yeah. oddly yeah. i imagine why is no one trying thing. that let's try it with five slits I, I imagine they probably have and the same thing pretty five, much happens five. uh all right there do you buy that well is this what you mean by <laughs> um by subatomic particles being wacky does this have anything to do with entanglement oh um, god no Okay. But, I mean, it is wacky. <laughs> <laughs> it is incredibly wacky. Does this have anything to do with Heisenberg's uncertainty principle? Which I, I feel is one of those things that... Is referred to. I feel sometimes. I metaphorically yeah. grasp that. My understanding of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle is that when you get to the smallest level, the quantum level, things happen which means they're not predictable. Uh, particles go to places and you can't predict where they're going to pop up. Mm. Uh, and that reflects a certain sense that even if because this argument i think you quote uh, uh tom stoppard saying at uh, one version of reality if you knew where everything is mm. in the world yes. you'd be able to say what's going to happen next because you you'd possess all the information and therefore you'd know what follows mm. but heisenberg's uncertainty principle actually says you can't know everything because things keep moving around and you don't know where they're going to crop up next it's not to do so much with the popping up it's you're right in the fact that it's about the fact that we can't know everything or you don't have to be so anthropomorphic about it, is the fact that things can't be known. Yeah. Um, uh, so the uncertainty principle states that there are things called conjugate variables, um, which are kind of... Still sounds a bit dirty, doesn't it? I mean, virtually everything we've talked about has had a, a, a dirty second meeting. Conjugate variables. Conjugate variables. Yeah, exactly. Oh, right. um, um, oh, so and they are linked... Just trying to lighten things up a bit here. <laughs> They are linked properties of a particle. Um, the traditional one is position and momentum. So those two things are in a, a fundamental way linked to each other as a properties of a particle. So that if you were to know an awful lot about one of them, you, as a result of that, know less about the other one. It, they kind of act on a scale. So if you kind of know half of the information you want to know about position, you can kind of know half of the information Why? you want to know. We don't know. Don't know. Or at least certainly no one has uh, bothered to explain it to me. I, a lot of these things might be at in, work in deep or, or in very, very deep physics, but mm. it just so happens that things are linked and that if you want to know the exact position of a particle, you can't know anything about its momentum and that's fundamental to things that's not about us measuring things it's not about the apparatus not being good enough it's a natural fallout from this odd wave particle duality nature of matter it just that is what happens as a result of that Thea, should we talk about NADS? Yeah, well, one, one question before we come to NADS because I've, I've in and amongst my many scribbles 
um, on on your on your elegantly written piece, Sam, <laughs> uh, is in a massive bubble. Time is not linear? Question mark exclamation mark. Indeed. So, <laughs> and yet <laughs> it is. <laughs> there are two competing theories. It's either you have to effectively say, and this is due to entanglement. In fact, I, if you don't mind, I will explain entanglement, and that will help. Yes, explain please that. do. Go on. So entanglement is when two particles are linked, usually by being created at the same time, but there are other ways to link them. Share, they sort of work as a single system. So there are two particles, but they share properties between them. Um, the thing that people talk about in popular science books is they share a property called spin. Spin is nothing to do with spinning at all. And it can exist in two states, which are called up and down, but could be called whatever you like. So spin is shared between these two particles. And as you make a measurement of one of the particles, the spin becomes fixed. So you will measure it and it will either be up or down. And the other particle, therefore, will fix into the opposite. So when you measure this, it will be up, the other one will be down. That seems very logical, and it seems to suggest that, actually, the particles were just up and down. They're in a pairing, one's up, one's down. Um, one is an apple and one is an orange. But, no. Uh, it, of course not. Uh, <laughs> it turns out that, and I can't quite remember how they, they know this, but it is a proven fact, uh, and they've actually taken a photograph of entanglement happening somehow. It's not an apple and an orange. They are, in fact, both. They sort of are mixed. They are both apple and orange. Both particles are apple and orange simultaneously. Up and down. Up but and not, down. But not transitioning constantly. Or no, they are sort they... of... They are a kind of field, a medley of up and down all the time in what's called a superposition. A medley of apples and oranges. Yeah. Sounds delicious. Pretty solid. Yeah. But when you make a measurement, suddenly it is fixed into oh. one and other. So the world does not exist unless you look at it. Yeah, that has it, there is some basis for that. And the problem, apart from the obvious problems for that, <laughs> um, is that you know immediately what the other one is. So you measure it and you know one is up. Yeah. Because you've measured it, it's up. But you know, therefore, immediately that the other one is down. So this suggests... And it can be that the other one is on the, literally the other side of the universe. It can, they can go bumbling off. Well, what makes them a pair? This odd pairing, this superposition, this what, entanglement so with each a, other. Is everything a pair? P-A-I-R, not yeah. P-E-A-R. Yes, indeed. <laughs> no. It's an apple or orange or a pair. No, then no pairs. Yeah, so, so, so we talk about pairs as if that's like a natural thing. So are all well, particles no, paired? No, not, not all of them, I believe, are pairs. There are ways in which it, particles can become entangled and some are created entangled, but not everything. Can entangled. they be entangled in more than two groups of two? I, I don't think so. I found no reference Fine. to that. Fine. So what is, why does this stop time being linear? Well, so, the uh, implication of faster-than-light communication is because it's incompatible with relativity. Nothing can travel faster than light. And there are ways in which people say that actually information isn't travelling faster than light because you have to compare results before you're absolutely sure that one is up and one is down. But they always correlate. It always happens that if you make a measurement, one is up and the other one is down. 
So the way to explain faster than light communication is either that time does not exist or space does not exist. They are the two options you Because they could be very far apart, and by measuring them, mm. you fix one into one position, and therefore you're communicating instantly with something that's yeah. geographically millions of miles away. Yeah, and what well, if space doesn't exist, then that's fine, because it's not travelling any distance. But if it, space does exist, it's travelling million miles in, in zero time. Yes. Which means time doesn't exist. Exactly. Um, so and yet, <laughs> common sense dictates that time and space both exist. Indeed, but... You would, uh, in fact, Carlo Rovelli, who would argue that time is not linear, and Lee Smolin, who would argue that space is not fundamental, would both say that's um, kind of anthropomorphic, a very human way of looking at things. It's, You're so it, human, Steve. Yeah. Our view of the world is very limited, and I, it certainly does not apply to the world of particles. I think the, if people are interested in NADs, which I, I presume they are, who isn't? They should read Sam's piece, because I, I feel that, that I'm begin- <laughs> I, I feel like I've, I've slightly understood this. Tenuously, I, I think if I, we go further, I might lose what slender grip I, I have. And maybe if I f- understand it, Theo will not be able to understand it. I mean, Theo <laughs> understands it, I will not be able to understand and it. And am I an apple or a pear yeah, exactly. or, or an orange you're in an this orange. scenario? Um, well, you're a very clever man, Sam. I, I, I enjoyed that. Did you enjoy that, Theo? I feel... I need a lie down. <laughs> yes, we won't be having a lie down, but uh, Sam Graydon, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Edith Nesbitt, or E. Nesbitt, as she was on the page for the usual Victorian reason of gender concealment, 
other times she used her son's name, is probably best known as the author of The Railway Children, of which I suspect no British child born before, say, 1990, can be unaware. The story of an innocent father accused of espionage and his band of children who must prove the falsity of the charge with the help of a benevolent old man on the 915 train that goes past the house and a Russian exile, was first serialised in the early 1900s. A film followed, plus two TV adaptations, one of them hugely successful. I know I'm not the only child who dreamt of someday having a train line at the bottom of the garden, or who regularly stole her granddad's handkerchiefs to wave at trains. No red petticoats were available. It's all very nostalgic and sweet. The world of the railway children was one in which boys were boys and girls were girls. There was a threat, sure, but justice prevailed and all ended nice and soppily. This was the Victorian family idealised to the nth degree. Which doesn't quite square, or in fact doesn't square at all, with the author's own domestic experience, as two new biographies make abundantly clear. Elaine Showalter has read both books, The Life and Loves of E. Nesbitt by Eleanor Fitzsimmons and The Extraordinary Life of E. Nesbitt by Elizabeth Galvin, and joins us on the line to paint the picture, pretty shocking even beyond the Victorian context. Um, Hello, Elaine. Good morning. It's difficult to know where to begin, really. Um, Can you give us the bones of... E. Nesbitt's biography, and then we'll sort of wade into specific parts in more detail. She's in this incredible generation of women at the end of the 19th century. Some of them are bohemians, and some of them are in the aesthetic movement, and some of them are Fabians, um, and some of them are Marxists. All kinds of women, including Eleanor Marx, is one of the most famous. And they are extraordinary radicals, exemplary figures in every way terrible taste in men, somehow managed to find absolutely the worst men, you know, in the whole group available in the cohort, very unhappy personal and sexual lives. But Nesbitt, who makes her uh, name and career as a writer of children books, and even, as it's been said, invented the modern children's novel, which I think is, is an accurate description, has one of the most scandalous shocking personal lives, lives in a kind of menage a trois for all of her married life, married a truly awful man, and stayed with him for 34 years. And along with this, I mean, you can sort of go on from that. Every attribute is fascinating. None of them fit together. She's a great fashionista, really somebody who made the liberty dress forever the costume of the advanced woman glamorous, great hostess, a great cook, an incredible athlete. Never-ending list of fascinating But when traits. you say menage a trois, it sounds in some ways, well, that sounds a bit fruity, but really what we mean by that with is, is, a, is a husband who sort of kept a mistress in the same house as them, and it, E. Nesbitt had to bring up their children. Yes. Well, in the, be- in the beginning, she didn't know. I mean, this, this young woman, Alice Hoatson, came to live with her because her husband was still living with his mom. She got her friend to come and move in with her and help with the housework and help with the kids. And pretty soon, uh, the friend, Alice, was sleeping with the husband, you know, when he came over to visit and it had two children by him. Edith adopted both of them as her own and didn't know for a long time that he was actually the father. And we should say that he's called Hugh Bland, which can only be taken ironically, really. Yes. He sounds yes, like a to... singularly horrible person. 
He was, but he he was he was quite remarkable, and he's a character much written about by the men of the period: Shaw, Wells, Arthur Ransom. Everybody knew him. He was really a charismatic figure. He joined the Fabian Society early, and he kind of found his metier because he was quite a good journalist. He was a boisterous, large man who wore a monocle. You know, kind of working class advocate, you know, Marxist, socialist, and so on, all for the working class, dressed like the most grotesque parody of a toff. He was wearing, you know, a top hat to work as a clerk with his monocle and so on. And men all distrusted him and disliked him and write terrible things about him. And women seem to have been tremendously attracted to him. So that classic paradox, the, the irresistible cad... Some of what you've said makes her sound like she was a revolutionary. She was she was different, but she really, in many other ways, was not. And a, a lot of that was sort of backing up what Hugh Bland argued. Yes, I mean, it, it's exceptional. She should, by all rights, absolutely, this is a feminist. You cannot look at the life and you cannot imagine that she's anything but a feminist. She supported the whole family. She started writing very young. Um, she worked incredibly hard. I mean, she never stopped writing. People have descriptions of her sitting at the dinner table, writing and smoking simultaneously, turning out all of this stuff in the magazines, mainly, to support eventually became five children. Um, and incredibly radical in all of her personal tastes. And he, of course, is one of the great misogynists of the period, completely unabashed, outspoken misogynist, and on the subject of suffrage, he says, votes for women, votes for children, votes for dogs. I mean, that's the way he represents it. And Edith goes into the Fabian Society and gives a speech against women's suffrage on the subject of the disabilities of women absolutely horrified the Fabian women who had come to the luncheon and sustained this view, absolutely supported him in his misogynist arguments. And what was the reason? Was she too weak to, to deal with his arguments? Did she believe it herself? Was she in, you know, just placed in a situation where she couldn't have free thought? What, what's well, the... ab- no, there's no way that you can describe her as helpless. No, and I mean, that's the in- one of the interesting things about the biographies. There have now been four biographies. There were two in the 20th century, both of them quite remarkable. Um, one by a woman who wrote it just seven years after she died and, you know, kind of interviewed all the friends and family. And then one later by Julia Briggs, who was an Oxford academic who I actually knew, a wonderful, remarkable woman and kind of a vivid personality herself, who wrote a tremendous biography of, of Nesbitt. And now these two simultaneous biographies, both of which very, very good, and they have to answer the question, Why? What is the reason behind these contradictions? Why did she stay with him? What's the answer then, Elaine? Why did she stay with him? That's the most baffling, um, isn't it? Well, there, there, there are two opposed views, and I'm not sure I believe either one of them. One is that she just adored him. She couldn't live without him. She was totally devoted to him, um, and he ruled the roost, and perhaps there's some kind of sexual um, mesmerism there. I don't believe that entirely at all. really don't. And the other is that somehow she was a sinister creature, and she had him in her thrall. Uh, he, she was much more successful. Somehow he knew in his heart that she was the superior writer and the, the better 
burner and, and, and so on, and she made him feel it. That's what H.G. Wells said. I think it's, it's more a product of her childhood. She had quite an unhappy childhood, drifting around with her mother all over Europe, uh, never rarely in places that she liked, kind of traumatic childhood in many ways. And I think once she got into the marriage, there were things that worked to her advantage. It was not that easy to get a divorce. They had five children they were raising together. And they had rather collectively a good life. I mean, they, they collaborated sometimes. She had a wonderful country house in, in, in Kent that she turned into a um, tremendous show place. I mean, really the, the, the British equivalent of some kind of great country salon. And people went there, artists went, writers went, everybody went, and she cooked enormous meals. The description of her in one of the books, running out of food and having unexpected deck guests, and she makes them a yard-long omelet and serves <laughs> oh, it up. Oh, I'd love, can, I'd love a yard-long omelet. I know, you can just picture it. I yeah. mean, it's wonderful. So she had this, she had a great life. Her, her clothes were spectacular. Everybody talks about the clothes you know, flowing silk gowns, lots of beads, lots of bracelets, scarves trailing everywhere, Turkish slippers, smoking all the time. It was a good life, and in a way, I think he was just finally somebody else in the house. I mean, by by excavating the life like this, do we gain insight into her, imagine it, why she wrote what she wrote the way she wrote? I mean, I hadn't realised... I only really knew her for the railway children and five children and it with the wonderful Samiad. Um, yeah. she, she wrote really dark tales, though, didn't she? Yeah, there are a whole bunch of, of horror tales and ghost tales. Some of them, I think, have just been reissued in a collection from Penguin. And they are very much the reflection. It's quite interesting. Galvin particularly analyzes some of these stories, and she said they're all projections of her anger about the marital relationship. I mean, one thing she certainly did not like is his the other women in his life, and particularly having to make her peace with the one who was living with him, um, <laughs> Funny and taking on the children. And she took it out in various ways. I mean, people began to say, the biographer said, that she really mistreated the children of the other woman, even though she adopted them and kind of carried on in public that she had these five wonderful children, the adult children said, no, no, she treated those two children quite unfairly. And her own children said that she was not the greatest mother to them either, even though you have, you know, in the railway children, this saintly mother who was presiding over the family of the three children forced into sudden poverty. And it comes out, too, interestingly, in some of the children's writing. That's the more interesting thing. I think it was quite late in her life that she found her voice as a writer of children's fiction. And the books, I think, are still very readable. Yeah, where do they stand in, in, in the children? Because I was trying to work out, because I've read them, I'm sure, but they don't stick in my mind in the same way that, say, Swallows and Amazons did, Arthur yeah, Ransom. Well, I think it depends on what you read. I mean, I, and I think something like The Railway Children, which, of course, is a classic and so on, I think is really, I think it's more of a book for girls. But I think that some of the other books that, are, that don't get so much attention and haven't been filmed are, are much more generally attractive and much more readable. I would recommend the story of the Treasure Seekers, which has a male narrator named Oswald. He's a child. And he conceals, the first-person narrator, and he says, well, I'm not going to tell you which of the, us children is writing this. 
but he's an incredibly vain and comic narrator and constantly making remarks on the proper way to write a novel and the proper way to write a children's book. It is just hilarious. And I think in that book you get the full flavor of her, of her voice, her kind of idiosyncratic, really very witty, parodic style. So I think this she still has a way to go, you know, as a writer to be revived. You, you mentioned Julia Briggs before you quoted her to yeah. say that, that Nesbitt was the first modern writer for children. What do you mean by that? Well, what she meant was that these are stories about clearly modern children and real children, and they're not written at all in a Victorian voice or style. Um, the children are recognizably childlike. They're, they're very natural. The language is extremely natural. No kind of pompous locutions or Victorian idioms. Um, and they are mischievous. They are bad. They steal. Um, they can be cruel to each other. They are not, you know, lovely little kids at all. Sweet little creatures. Um, and they are almost always depicted in very harsh circumstances. Her favorite writer was Dickens. She was really oh. steeped in Dickens. And they are more like Dickensian children um, in their situations. They are, they are generally middle-class children whose families have, have encountered some disaster. Mm. The father has disappeared. All the money is gone. The mother is sick. Both the parents are sick. You know, that yeah. kind of thing. And the children have to kind of pitch in and find ways to help out. And they don't entirely know what's going on a sort of a pre-Jamesian idea. The stories are told by the children. They don't know where the father is. They don't know where the money has gone. But they try to figure out and, and figure out how to help. In the ways they do it are, are, are very realistic and very entertaining and, see, and, and, you know, very convincing. In the railway children, you know, they're, they're freezing. They, they have to be very careful about the amount of coal and, and one of the boys goes out and finds a way to steal coal along the railroad tracks. He doesn't think of it as stealing. He's very good of it and that's the kind of thing that they do. I wonder about um, her being the first modern writer for children. Also, it has something to do with that holding together of the two things, the, the supernatural elements situated in this really, really real world, you know, with, with as you said, absent parents. Uh, a mother yeah. on hard times, wars rumbling around in the background. Obviously, that spoke very much to Britain at the time that she was writing. I'm wondering, just on a final point, if if she if she had much success in America, was she was she a thing there? Did she make it across? Not at all. I mean, she had some American fans, and one of them, Gore Vidal, was yeah. a huge fan. Seems unlikely somehow. Yeah, well, it's although it, actually it, it, maybe it, the Samiad. <laughs> yes, well, he just adored her, and he said the thing. That he said the trick to Nesbitt is she really did not like children, <laughs> and as a result, the children are extremely realistic. And he said they're like adults. And he said he said another very interesting thing. He said for Nesbitt, children are a kind of minority group in Edwardian England. They are powerless. And they are always at the mercy of adults, and that which which lies behind the whole portrayal of them. So there's always a kind of dark underside. I'll tell you what, Elaine, you, I think you talking about this and writing about this in the Could TLS is going to kickstart the Nesbit revolution in America. People listen to this in America. We can begin the Nesbit revolution now. Let, let's do it. Americans, if you're listening, <laughs> this is for you. Yeah. Catch up. Catch up. Catch get, up. Get going. Elaine Schultz, thank you very much indeed. Thanks so. Thank bye you. Bye. bye.
I love the idea of catching up on on something that happened in the 1890s. Uh, Quite right, too. (laughs) I don't think about this very much, but it's amazing that presumably the majority of books that have ever existed in the world are no longer being actively published. Most have quietly disappeared, only to be rediscovered in second-hand bookshops, eBay or the Amazon Marketplace. Are we to accept the literary judgment of market forces? Surely not. So what treasures have fallen beneath the cracks? What great laboriously drafted efforts should be redeemed? Well, we, by which I mean Ros Deneen, asked a whole murmur of tearless contributors. It's a new collective noun I'm going for. To nominate the book that they would most like to see more widely available. And Ros is here to tell us what she learnt. Ros, hello. Hello. Do we believe in literary Darwinism? Do we think only the fittest books survive? When you think about the books that have never been out of print, they're pretty impressive. They're, they're, they're never out of print for a reason. They're never out of print for a reason. You've got Emma, it's never been out of print. Yeah. Dracula. Are there, are there not many books that have never been out no, of print? No, there aren't as many as you think. So, for example, Emma has never been out of print, and because of that, her other works have come in and out. Really? Uh, so her Austen's works haven't always been in no, print? No. Little, has Little Women been always in print? I don't know. Okay. Dracula has never been out of print. Gone with the Wind has never been out of print. Rebecca. Wow. Uh, the most Rebecca. interesting That's one great, that has never been out of print. The Pilgrim's Progress oh, that has a, never yeah, been out of print since 1678. That does not surprise me. That's 1678. I mean, that's quite... <laughs> I would think it probably has, comes more chance of coming out of print now than it almost ever has done. Perhaps. Because yes. it kind of speaks to a certain traditional religiosity that but maybe... Perhaps. Although I think academic yeah. curricula keep certain works in print even yeah. when they go out of fashion and then they're there when they come back into fashion. But in terms of, you know, do I think there's literary Darwinism... A lot of it has to do with whether what fashions and certain aesthetics survive. Yeah. Market forces, exactly. Yeah. And that's, yeah. the, but maybe that's the purest form of literary criticism. Market forces, God. Yeah, well, uh, well <laughs> from a historical view, I'm not saying yeah. you know in the day to day, but from a you know history, does history generally judge correctly? Seems to me an interesting point. You know, Walter Scott versus Jane Austen. The view of history has been Jane Austen, mm-hmm. and insofar as you can make these sort of bald claims, which I'm going to, mm-hmm. um, does history get it right more than it gets it wrong I wonder I don't I mean maybe that's impossible to say but there is definitely a historical judgment upon books isn't there mm. but we're going to presume that there are some hidden treasures out there mm. what were recommended here what struck you about this list there were quite a number of children's books yes which was oh it's really nice actually it was really central. I mean there was one by uh, Kate McLaughlin and she recounts um, reading The Winter of Enchantment by Victoria Walker while at Brownie Camp in North Wales in the right. late 1970s yeah at the end, she says, it's why I became an English professor. And that's that. And yeah, I like the beginning of the book. A silver teapot suddenly winks at a boy, Sebastian. Yeah. That's a good beginning of a book. Isn't it? And that's uh, not in print. And then equally, Sam Leith uh, chose a book called Grinny by Nicholas Frick. And um, I think it was, was it Stuart, Stuart Kelly? Kelly. Mr. Neverlost. Mr. Neverlost, who has been lost because he's not no longer published um, by Archibald Turnbull. And uh, yeah, these out of print books. That, but also, strangely, the contributors didn't necessarily weren't make a huge case for them to be reprinted because there's something about how they remember them yeah. that they want to preserve didn't you find a children's book uh, i did what? i found him a children's book that had it was printed in 1927 called the house without windows by barbara newhall follett and i found it found the pdf on the internet and i thought it was strange remarkable and out of print forever and mysteriously <laughs> 
It's now in print. Is it? <laughs> yeah. Is it really? Yeah. What, why did that happen? I don't know. I probably blabbed too much about it. Blabbed too much. Well, yeah. Now we're book publishers. Effectively, we're doing that in this whole feature, We are, but we? we're, also, yeah. we're, bu- we're book publishers now, all three of us, uh, for TLS Books, so we could at any point just gra- grab one of these books and, and well, publish Well, that's what them. I thought had happened, and then I said, oh, I found this great book, and then and now it's now it's been published. So there we go. Um, so it's available. Which so we would should you be re- happy about that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and actually, I think discovering <laughs> it, and the great pleasure in life is recommending a book, isn't it? I'd say one of the few unalloyed pleasures in life is recommending mm. a book. Mm. And recommending a book that's out of print and is, is a lovely thing. Okay, it's each of us, the one we'd most like to read and why, please. Do you want to go? Shall I go? I would like to read. Dave's going to um, think about it. I'd like to read some Dillis Powell. Yes. Who Ali Smith recommends. Very good. I'd never heard of her. Should I I'm have heard ashamed of her? that I hadn't either. Um, but oh yeah, I sorry. really trust Ali's judgment and everything and this book. so she wrote books about Greece An Affair of the Heart 1957 and The Villa Ariadne 1973 mm, and she just sort of and she also just uh, was one of the only people here who just confident enough to just quote a huge chunk of the book because yeah. she thinks it just speaks for itself yeah I'm um, blown so, back to this book again and again is the very nice way she summarises that yeah um, um, and then there's another book which I actually have picked up um, which Patricia Craig recommends uh, by Mary Elman called Thinking About Women yes which was published in 1968 and she says that um, Elman's pioneering study was somehow unfairly sidelined in the subsequent rush to assert ideas of equality in every branch of women's writing and I, I got a copy off of A Books which is where you can get all of these out of print things incredibly cheaply um, and it's very funny which is often something that's missing from, yeah. you know, right, original right on feminist criticism. Yeah. It's hysterical. Uh, and is it of its time? Could it survive now? I'm not sure if it could. It, it can survive now as a sort of interesting artefact, but it is, I think, of its time. Because I was struck when I read, William Boyd recommends Turkey Hash, which is a bloke called Craig Nova. I think he's still alive. It's a novel in 1972. And the review said it carried the kick of a nail poked into a live light socket, which is a great line. Uh, and it's, as William Boyd describes it, a stark, bleak view of the underbelly of Los Angeles life written in a charged, cleverly wrought prose that marries Hemingway's monosyllabic heft with the dystopian lyricism that Scott Fitzgerald would not disown. And I read it, uh, and it's very good, but it is very of its time. And mm. it's a striking thing of this that it's not literary Darwinism, it's not necessarily even a judgment on the quality of the writing. I mean, some great writing transcends period, clearly, mm. but some very good writing so saturated in its period that maybe you can read it as a tourist because it takes you to the 70s and maybe you want to go there but it struck me reading that that it was very good but wouldn't have a life in the 2020s there are actually very few examples of books that are taken out of uh, you know forgotten mists and do incredibly well there's stoner yeah by john williams is the most obvious example but there aren't that many stoners no. out there and also Stoner wasn't actually that forgotten because we'd reviewed it a few years earlier or something. It, it was wasn't repa- as forgotten, was it was just, just repackaged, repackaged yeah, and it was it was a kind of a marketing phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, anything you'd like to read here, Thea? True to form, I'm going to represent the non-anglophone. Oh. Because that's an interesting thing in this list, actually. A lot of people, or certainly some people, choose but Richard Canning has one from a Dutch writer in yeah. translation. Uh, Marina Warner has one from, I think, an Egyptian writer. And then Claire Pettit, I really like the sound of her choices. And Mercero Doreda, which is a Catalan writer. And um, in fact, we had a piece by Colm Tobin, didn't we, not that long ago? Yes. On a reissue yeah, yeah. of Rodoreda. But then there's a book, so Gesualdo Bufalino. I've read Le Menzogne della Notte, which you sort of have to read 
uh, in Italy. I'm pretty sure it's on the curriculum. And I found it quite hard going. It's set in the 1800s and it's in a, it's on a prison island and it's uh, 24 hours in the lives of these four characters, a poet, a soldier, a baron and a student, before they're to be executed for mm. being uh, against the Bourbon monarchy. This is a book by Gisu- uh, Gisualdo Bufalino that I haven't heard of before and it's Diceria del Untore, which is The Gardener's Rumour okay. from 1981 and it's set in Sicily just after the Second World War in a sanatorium for tuberculosis uh, narrated by a sole survivor who depends, mo- uh, who spends most of the novel thinking that he's dying and then isn't. Uh, <laughs> it's febrile, darkly comic atmosphere reminds me, um, says Claire Pettit of Gogol and Beckett and it just, I think I should revisit Buffalino basically. Uh, it won the Campiello, it was started in the 50s and he didn't finish it until the 1970s. Oh, so there's a story there's always it. this kind of like yeah. waiting theme with him it seems and also i think that books in other languages have the potential to be doubly lost can't they because mm. they never get translated or they get translated once maybe not well and don't survive and then just time itself sort of uh, affects their chances ros we have this tls books imprint mm-hmm. and we're gonna try and publish an out of print book if mm-hmm. the right one comes along mm-hmm. and if we don't tell people about it first no yeah. Yeah, yes thank you ros <laughs> we don't want other people to publish it if at all possible uh <laughs> Should people contact you with their ideas? That'd be fun, wouldn't it? If people listen to this podcast, contacted, that'd be you. Should contact me. Yes, you got troubled. Be, I don't yeah. have to handle. <laughs> uh, I tell you what. Why don't you tweet? What's your what's your what's your Twitter account, Ros? It's at Ros Deneen. At Ros Deneen. I'm at Stig Abel. You're at Thea Lenarduzzi Street. Yeah, yeah, right. We're all pretty so. contactable. Yeah, yeah. Directly tweet us, and we'll try. I mean, we're interested. I mean, yeah, crowd right, sort, honestly it, interested. It, yeah. crowd it would also sourcing. be interesting because I think a lot of people think that a book is out of print just because they haven't seen it in a while. I do this all the time. I'm like, oh, I haven't. That must be out of print. Yeah. But then it turns out that it is still in print. So Often we, with a small or a university press, actually. So we can investigate. But mm-hmm. in an ideal world, in 2021, we'd love to publish a book that's out of print now that was been recommended by a listener to this podcast. That'd exactly. be great, wouldn't it? And I think the thing about, you know, getting something like this off the ground and happening is that if someone comes along with an enthusiasm for a certain book, yep. we're keen to be enthusiastic about it too and make it... We're make keen it. to be enthusiastic generally, aren't we? We are, yeah. Exactly. Ros Deneen, thank you very much indeed. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks to Ros, to Sam Graydon and Elaine Showalter. I hope you enjoyed the first issue of the TLS this year. Do remember to make sure you're subscribing. Elsewhere in it, we have a look at how Harvey Weinstein got rumbled, a look again at Turgenev, and Lydia Davis is back in her garden. Next week, we'll be examining the Middle East. So New Year's optimism has not lasted that long. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra and united healthcare makes it easy with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they supplement your primary plan helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods so when it comes to covering your medical bills you can feel good about being a little extra visit uh1.com to find the health protector guard plan for you Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.